Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing the distance of fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, and because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive your sins. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the hymn reads. And um, maybe you, with a line like that, you think of a painting like this, right? That maybe still exists in some, one of our grandparents' homes, painted on crushed velvet, no doubt, in a gaudy frame, portraying Jesus. Somehow he was Caucasian. I don't know how he did that, but, uh, but like the serene sunset or sunrise in the background with the little lamb right there, is often a portrayal of Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But that is not the Jesus that we encounter in this passage today. We encounter a Jesus that, at least on the surface of it, seems hangry. Have you ever been hangry before? Have you ever gotten to a fight with a friend or a spouse and then realized 45 minutes later after no, not one of you won the fight that it was only because you hadn't eaten in four hours and then eaten some food and then quickly apologized? Have you ever been there? It seems like on the surface, Jesus might be hangry, which is weird to think about Jesus being hangry. But pay closer attention and you'll find that there is actually something more at foot. A foot. The Gospel of Mark, which is the Gospel that we're looking at, has like this way of communicating, this way of telling stories that, like, if we're to read it, we would miss it. And so it's important for us to understand it. It's oftentimes Mark will tell a story, and then right in the middle of the story, he'll throw in another story, and it will be bookended by the bigger story. Some people call this a Markin sandwich, which makes me hungry. Fortunately, not hangry. I'm not that bad. 
But, uh, and I do think if anybody, any food truck people, anybody starts a food truck, it would be a great name for the menu. Just thought, okay? That one's free. Um, but there's this kind of idea of this Mark and Sandwich that Mark tells the story. And, and, and like when these two stories go together, when he's telling the story with a story in the middle of it, we're supposed to understand them as like playing off of each other. They're supposed to kind of, we're supposed to understand them as like they reinforce each other. We interpret one story through the other and the other through the other. And it's communicating like one comprehensive picture. So when we look at the passage, we see that Jesus begins just being hungry, which we can relate to. I can relate to. Clearly, you can relate to. We all get hungry. It is part of being human. And it's just kind of cool and interesting, just maybe as an aside, that Jesus would get hungry, right? His divinity uh, does not uh, allows him to still experience things that we experience because he's fully God and he's fully divine. So he experiences hunger. And he goes up to the fig tree because the fig tree is seemingly the thing that will satisfy his hunger. Basic stuff. Some of you will leave here and you'll go to brunch somewhere. I'll leave here eventually and go home and crack open my freezer, turn the oven to 450, break those taquitos out because they're bomb and taquitos are appropriate for every age. Amen. And, uh, and I'll dine on the fine dining of Costco taquitos because I'm hungry. Basic stuff. Interesting. It gets a little more confusing, though, here in the text because it says it's not the season for figs. So Jesus would know that being a first century person. He would know that it's not the season for figs. And so why is he going up to a fig tree expecting figs when it's not the season? Well, this is where it kind of, it's important for us to kind of understand the context. There's, uh, in the first century, well, to this day, a fig tree will have like an early bud that actually is kind of like the first fruits of the, of the entire tree's crop of figs for the season. Um, and they're called pagim. And these pagim are actually edible. And so people that were contemporaries with Jesus would have eaten the pagim, if, especially if they're really hungry. And so there's reason to believe that Jesus going up to the fig tree was expecting some of these pagim, some of these early figs to satisfy his hunger. And then uh, Jesus doesn't see it and he curses the fig tree and then we find out later the fig tree dies. Um, but remember, this is a story that we're supposed to understand through the lens of the second one. Where's Jesus going? Jesus is going to the temple. It's hard for us to understand the weight and significance of the temple. The, the temple in the first century Jewish world was like the place where it all happened. We're approaching Passover and so everybody's there. It's like, you know, the, it's popping. People from not only Israel, but all around. Jews from all over the, the, the world are coming to the temple because the temple is the place where you offer sacrifices so that you can live with access to God for a period of time, having your sins forgiven because you've entered through the sacrificial system. Sacrifice this type of animal and your sins are atoned. Some people didn't have the ability to bring an animal with them and so they would bring money. And so that's why there's money changers in the temple. I give you some money and you give me a goat. And then we give the goat to the priest and then we are free for sin for a period of time. And so Jesus is 
going to the temple. It's where all the Jews were going. They're going to the temple. And it's interesting, because we're interpreting these stories off of each other, the fact that Jesus is hungry is significant. Jesus is hungry as he goes to the temple to not just participate in religious custom, but he's hungry to see authentic worship. He's hungry to see people with like reverent awe at the mercy and power of God. He wants to see, he's, he's famished, not just for figs, he's famished for people with just this beautiful openness, this transparency, this hunger for who God is celebrating God. And he gets there and he sees a whole bunch of leaves of religious activity, but no fruit. He, 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 judge, he judges it. In fact, this whole section you could call as Jesus judging false religion. Um, it says that he, he, he stops the exchange of money for animals. He kind of is like, he's, he's, he's caused, like, hey, everybody shut up. You kind of get the picture. Jesus is doing that. And then he says this. He says he, he began to teach them. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? Now, this is just fascinating. It's worth taking some time. Jesus is calling this his house. That's significant. This isn't just a place that he goes because he's Jewish. He's like connecting this as, this is like, this is, he's taking on this as like his, this is like has his, this is his space. And it's a call to house of prayer. This, the point is, is not just doing religious customs and religious activity, but it's actually connection with God. That this is a place where you should be able to come and be in connection with God. Be praying to God. Be open to God. Maybe even hearing back from him. This is a place. This is Jesus' house. And it's a place where in his house, what do you do? The activity is prayer. And then it goes on even farther. It's a place of prayer for who? For a select few that only if you have a certain ethnicity or a certain ideology or a certain socioeconomic status or a certain batting average or a certain kid on the honor roll. Is that the, no, it's a place of prayer for all nations. Now we are to understand nations not just, you could say, as like the, the different, the varieties of ethnicities, but you can understand nations kind of as like different types of people of all types. Now, it's interesting, he goes on to say, but you have done something different. You have turned my house that's made for prayer, that should be open to all, into a place that is a den of robbers. Now, the idea of robbers is not like kind of like a, you know, the next great heist movie. That's not what's being communicated. The idea of the den of robbers, the robbers, the word in Greek is like the, the type of people that have blended their nationalistic, ethnically centered religion uh, with their kind of like how they treat other people so that their shoulders are turned away from others that don't look like them. And so that they feel like they have a sense of righteousness, that they're in the in crowd, that they're accepted, that they have a sense of worthiness at the expense of everyone else. 
So Jesus is saying, this, is, this place is for prayer and it should be for everyone, but you have turned it into a place where other people are pushed aside so that you feel really good about yourselves and they don't feel like they have access to God. This whole thing where Jesus is teaching, as scholars will tell us, it was the court of the Gentiles. So the place where the money was being exchanged, the place where the sacrifices were kind of like the beginning, the, the, the exchange of money for animals, it was taking place where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, could come in and have as close as access, as much of access to God as possible. So you can see it's like the place that was for all the nations is being overrun by this commercialization of religion. And Jesus is bringing judgment on this type of religion. He doesn't stand for it. Remember, he's hungry for honest, heart-rending openness to God. And what he sees is the propaganda machine that is exclusive and pushes some out to the margins at the, at the uh, advantage of others. In this teaching, he's actually quoting two Old Testament passages, and it's fascinating because each of these Old Testament passages, uh, God is speaking. And so in Jeremiah 7, where it mentions the den of robbers section, uh, Jesus, or God is, is critiquing Israel for trusting in their own righteousness and their own position and their own sense of superiority because they have close proximity to what? The temple. So God is critiquing them saying, you think you're safe, you think you're great, you think you're good because you like maybe do all the performative right stuff and you, 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 know, you have this temple, you think you're great because of all that stuff. Well, I tell you that if you trust in that as your sense of righteousness, you've messed it all up. And he goes on to say in Jeremiah 7, the whole point is, is that you would care for, as an expression of worship, you would care for the people that are downtrodden, the people that are hurting, the people that are maligned and marginalized. That is the whole point. That's what true worship is all about. And then interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 56, and we're going to look at this quote Throughout Isaiah 56, and this is worth just spending some time on, if you have some time later to open it up, it's really worth cracking this section out and just and looking how Jesus is drawing from this as he's teaching here in, in Mark. Um, it's all about the foreigners, people that are non-Jewish, and this other subgroup, eunuchs, being invited into the kingdom of God, being invited into the family of God. Now, a eunuch was a person that uh, they, they lost their sense of uh, identity based on male or female because of the role that they had. So it was safe for if you were guarding or a bodyguard to the queen that, you know, to protect against any little trysts, any little romantic intrigue, that they would just castrate you and make you a eunuch. And that would ensure that, that there would be no romantic entanglements with the royalty or dignitaries that you were in charge of, of, of protecting. Uh, well, the challenge is in the ancient world, the only way that you have the assurance for your future is if you have children. Children pay your bills when you're old. Children care for you when you're old. Children ensure that you have a home, that you have food when you're old and you can't work yourself. And so here in Isaiah 56, 
God is saying the two most forgotten types of people, the two most misunderstood, the two most out there groups, the foreigners, the non-Jewish people, and the eunuchs, they're the ones that are included. And so this passage in 56 verse 3, it says, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. God is saying, no, if you're far, if you, if you, if you are not ethnically Jewish, it, it doesn't matter. Do you love me? That's what God's saying. And then, interestingly, it says, and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. Now, pause that. Check this out. Because in the story in Mark, there is a story of a dry tree. There's a story of a fig tree that is not producing any what? Fruit. And Jesus is very aware that this passage in Isaiah 56 speaks about a dry tree. So in Jesus' economy, in Jesus' understanding of, of faith and God and true religion, he says the whole temple paradigm where certain people are pushed aside and there's this cumbersome burden of religiosity that weighs down deep on everyone that tries to do it, thinking that there is only a temporary forgiveness to a constant problem of need for forgiveness. He says, you know, that whole paradigm is like a dry tree, but the one that you call a dry tree, they actually are going to bear fruit. Jesus turns convention on its head and then closes it off saying, my house will be that house where all nations will have access to me. You could think about it like this. Jesus is giving this challenging judgment of twofold, of breaking and awakening. Breaking and awakening. Jesus wants to break Israel off. And anybody that's listening, in fact, we know that they were amazed by his teaching. So they were intrigued. They wanted to know more. He wants them to break, to break them of the false trust that they are secured just because of their righteousness, their own righteousness. He wants to break them from that. He wants to, to make sure that they aren't trusting in something that is, that is, that is connected to just themselves, their, whether it's their ethnicity or their law performance or their religion religious performance or their church attendance or how great they think they are or where they live in Jerusalem. He wants them to stop trusting in them. He wants to break them of that trust. Because here's the truth, and this is true to this present day. Spiritual power comes when we are, we are broken from false trust and false religion. Spiritual power, actual spiritual power, it comes when we stop trusting in ourselves. And until we tr stop trusting in ourselves, we will not experience spiritual power. So Jesus wants to break them from trusting in themselves. And he wants to awaken them to the heart of God. Awaken them that, that, that here's the cool thing. Because when, when we set up a standard of righteousness that is based on our, our self, we always exclude other people 
Because the standard of righteousness is really about ourselves to prop our own ego up at the expense of other people. And when Jesus breaks us from trusting to ourselves and basing a standard of righteousness according to our virtues and values, when he breaks us from that and he places our standard, our standard of righteousness and our sense of trust not in ourselves but in him, then all of a sudden there's lots of space at the table. Because it's him that sets the standard, not us. I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I, the, that kind of spiritual power where we're broken from false trust is the stuff that I want. I, I want to see God. I want to, I want to continually come in a place like this and be just like made aware that I, am, I, can, I have to stop trusting in myself and only trust in God. Because, because I do think like, things really start to move when that happens. I, I don't know if you've been following this, um, but there's this, been this fascinating kind of series of events been happening at Asbury University in, in Kentucky, um, and it's been covered by CNN and all sorts of news outlets and Christianity Today, and, and I've, I've been really interested in it, um, uh, partly because my friend was kind of involved in it. I'll t- tell you this kind of stage, set the story so you can understand a little bit if you haven't heard of it, but um, about a week and a half ago, there was this chapel service. Now, if you've been to a Christian university, I think I've, I've heard that chapel services is what you do, you know? You have to get a certain amount of, in a year. It sounds kind of tedious a little bit. Um, and so there's this run-of-the-mill chapel service. And I remember my friend was actually speaking at it. He was speaking at this. And he said on Instagram, hey, would you pray for me? I'm about to speak at chapel at Asbury University. And I, I, didn't, I didn't pray for him. Um, <laughs> I was scrolling. I was kind of like, eh, okay, him, I like it, but I don't know if I'm going to pray. Um, I have other things to pray for. So. Um, and then the next thing I saw on his post was that uh, it's been 36 hours of continual prayer and, and worship. And I was, I was like, wait, what happened? Uh, to the, and like, check this out. I think it's still going today. It's still going. Like a week and a half, there's, like non, there's prayer and there's worship. And for some of us, maybe that if we're not followers of Jesus, we're like, that sounds exhausting. Um, or maybe even for Jesus followers, like, still sounds exhausting. Um, but like, it's fascinating to me. I DM'd him like when I saw the 36 hours and I'm like, dude, tell me more. And he, didn't res- he left me unread. Um, <laughs> but last night we were DMing, and he, he responded and um, we were DMing and I just... He kept on talking about like repentance, radical humility, and hunger for God. And I was like taking note of the things that like in the pictures, because I've been like, you know, um, I'm a professional Instagram scroller, so I've been looking at like, take, you know, people taking pictures of, and stuff. And I, like, I, I, I get leery of the word revival. I get nervous about a cre- saying, oh, you know, and it's an overused word, but like I, I also want it, right? And so there's this tornness that I feel within myself. Um, and um, I was looking at the pictures of uh, this, this, this thing that's going on, whatever you want to call it, and um, it seems like, it, like things that it, it didn't have were good production value. About B minus in production value. The sound quality was, eh. even through the Instagram videos, I could tell. I was listening to a podcast and, and the, the, that was talking about it. And the podcast um, 
was like, yeah, the, the chapel message was kind of boring, actually. And I'm like, dude, that was my friend. You just didn't... <laughs> it's a clearly not an uh, underwhelming message. Underproduced. No fog machines and no flashing lights. Not a dope venue. No, no influencers really kind of like propping it up and pushing it forward in any real obvious way. And you have a whole bunch of like college students. All like Gen Z. Now, like this generation, think about the generation that's in college right now that are doing their undergrad. Their childhood was the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Fast forward a few more years and you have increasing political vitriol. You have rise of depression with both boys and girls. You have this kind of image-based economy where everything, you're always assessing who you are based upon what you're seeing. And it's not just what you're seeing at school, but it's what you're seeing everywhere, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or some other app that I haven't heard of that's cooler because I'm not that cool, I guess. And then you have war, and then you have a pandemic, and then you have cries for racial justice, and then you have all sorts of protests for every single thing you can protest. And then you have increasing violence and, and homeless issues that people don't know how to figure out, like homelessness. You have all this stuff. And like, then you have this generation that's, that's what they know. That's, what, that's like life. And you just get the sense, and I was messaging with my friend, you get the sense that like, there's this like, group of people at Asbury, and I think increasingly more and more are feeling like the sense of, I just quit on this type of life. I quit on the rat race. I quit on the righteousness projects of a secular culture that continues to prop up looks and, and, and money and fame and wealth and influencer status and blue check marks as the status for who's in and who's out. It's a vacuous system that offers no life. I'm tired of religion, religiosity that's about role, that checking things off and doing things as a, as a matter of religious performance. I'm tired of all of it. I just want God. And if God's not here, I don't know what I want because he's the only one that can solve the heart hunger that I have. I just think that there's something there that could offer us leadership. Radical hunger, repentance, radical humility. Well, Jesus doesn't just give a, a judgment of false religion. He gives us a call to true religion. He says, after Peter sees that fig tree that's dead at the roots, he says, hey, hey Jesus, take a look. Yeah, then they work. Jesus says, have faith in God. Not the temple, not the religious, not the religious system. That just have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it is done for them. I, um, it's fascinating to me when Jesus says this mountain, he's not talking about any mountain. He's not giving you permission to kind of just like name it and claim it right here. What he's saying is he's talking about a specific mountain. The temple is on a mountain, the temple mount. So it's most likely that Jesus is saying, see the temple, it's going into the sea. The whole religious enterprise built around this temple that is propelling an exclusivity and, and missing the heart of God, it's going into the sea. And at this point, like most of my skate, like skater friends, 
are like punk rock, Jesus, so punk rock. Anti-establishment, revolutionary, love it, more of that. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes further. You see, a few chapters ago, the disciples were asking, or Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they had all these ideas, and they said, this person, that person, this one. And then Jesus looks them in the eyes and says, what about you guys? And Matthew's gospel, Peter says, you are the Messiah, son of the, the most high God. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus says this in response in Matthew's gospel. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What's happening here? What am I getting at? Jesus is comparing the simple rock of confession in Jesus Christ as Lord with the impressive temple artifice. He's comparing this ornate religious system that seems prestigious and excludes others and includes, and includes others. He's comparing this with the simple religious confession, the simple true religion of just saying, Jesus is Lord. And he's saying, the temple's gonna go into the sea, but the rock that is built on the confession that Jesus is Lord, hell can try to take it down and it won't win. There's this beautiful simplicity to a religion that just says, yeah, Jesus is Lord. It's interesting, I, we talked about Jesus was critiquing the religious system because it didn't include the eunuchs and, the, and, and all nations. It didn't include them and Jesus was critiquing it. It's easy for us to get really excited about that. Like, yes, we need to, it's all about everybody, everybody come on, bigger tables. But Jesus, Jesus calls that the fruit of true religion. That's the fruit of true religion. And it's important to note, the life of true religion is not found in its fruit. It's found in the root. The root of true religion is not a bigger table. It's an exalted Jesus. When you, when you have an exalted Jesus, you get a bigger table. Because your righteousness system is not based around your own biases and prejudice. Your righteousness system is built on your depravity and your need for Jesus. Your need, your desperate need for Jesus. And so when you have the root, when the root of true religion is Jesus Christ is Lord, the fruit always becomes a bigger table. If you go running after the big fruit, the fruit, you'll end up creating another man-made religion that ends up excluding other people. I, um, I am, I've been compelled this whole week, if I can just kind of maybe share uh, that opening line. Jesus was hungry. Um, sometimes I, I, I don't like to give too much insight in like my own internal processing with sermons, but I, I've, been, I've been asking like in my prayer life, Jesus, what are you hungry for right now? Like, what, do you, what do you want to see in your church? And what will not satisfy you? What will you look at and point at and say, leafy religious activity devoid of fruit? What will be the plant that you, you, you say, not enough, what do you want to break us of? And what do you want to awaken us to? 
the band can come on up and those helping with prayer and communion can come forward. I guess I just want to pass that on maybe to you as a question. Maybe even you can start asking yourself now, God, what do you want to break me of? What do you, what do you want to, is there some type of self-trust? Is there some type of thing that I'm, I'm loving that is not you or maybe it's contrary to you? Where do you want to save me from myself? And what do you want to awaken me to? Jesus is hungry. He's hungry for a person that is honest. He's hungry for a person that will confess their need for him. He's hungry for a person that's desperate for spiritual power. He's hungry for a person that is fed on up, with, fed up of what the, relig- the world will offer. He's hungry for authenticity. He's hungry for contrite hearts. He's hungry for humility. He's hungry for people that are, will stop exalting themselves. He's hungry for people that will stop chasing the dreams of the world that are vacuous and empty and always leave us hungry. He's hungry for you. He's hungry for hands raised and hearts open. He's hungry for people to sing that knowing that inside themselves they need the words they're declaring. He's hungry. He's hungry. He's tired of religious artifice. He's tired of going through the motions. He's tired with feeling good about ourselves or being church people. He's tired of that. He will only be satisfied with someone that says, I am only satisfied in you. And we get to reawaken ourselves. We get to let the Spirit of God reawaken us to that every week with communion. Because in communion you hear Christ's body given for you. Christ's blood shed for you. It's a picture of how much he loves you. He is safe. And we get to come with prayer. We get to come with open hearts to the prayer stations. Come to prayer today. Come to prayer. Say, God, I need you to do that breaking work in me. I need you to do that awakening work in me. So I invite you to stand as you're able and I want to pray over us right now. Spirit of the living God, we come. Come into our doubts. In this place, there's people that are, we're just, we're just here because it's maybe somebody brought us. Come into our doubts. Come into our disinterest. Come into our preoccupation. Come into our distraction. Knock on the door. Be patient with us, but knock on the door. Keep knocking. Give us the courage and the faith to open the door. Give us the courage and the faith to to look you in the eyes and say, God, I am tired of what the world offers. I need you. I need you. I need you. And spirit of the living God, would you remind us that there is no power apart from dependence? Let it be so.